All right, so we're going to record this session as we have with the other ones for uh, those who weren't able to be with us today. So I'm going to try to remember to repeat your questions if you uh, ask one. So if I don't remember, maybe remind me to remember uh, to repeat your questions. Before we get to questions, um, one of our elders asked me to ask you to take your phone out and text a certain three-letter code to a certain six-digit number. So that you'll get a link to a survey is what we're going to do that. So you're going to text ANT, which stands for A Noble Task, to the number 797979. Why are you not doing that? Uh, okay, so you don't have to. I don't have my phone. There you go. All right, so ANT to 797979, and that'll get you a link that you'll fill out not during this hour, ideally. Uh, Types of questions will be like, should we do this on a different day of the week? Will you come again if we do this? Uh, those types of, of questions. So, all right. Thank you, Aaron, for your um, ministry to us this morning. And again, in a little while through preaching. But And thank you for that comment about um, commending or entrusting our church to God. I think from your talk, that was a good reminder to just do the work and then entrust it to the Lord. Thank you for that. Yeah, thank you. Can you, so I've asked you this like three times this weekend already, but can you talk about your conversion, how you came to hear the gospel? And uh, Grew up in a non-Christian, non-Christian home. Grew up thinking all Christians are stupid because everything I learned about Christianity, I literally learned from television. Met the smartest girl in my high school, my senior year. Found out she was a Christian dumbfounded that the smartest girl in my school could be a Christian, peppered her with questions, forced her to answer, yes, Aaron, if that's what you believe and that's how you live your life, I think you're going to hell. Bold over that someone actually thought there was hell and the Holy Spirit used her boldness to make me rethink my, I guess, atheism, agnosticism, and uh, several months later, truly repented and believed, um, ended up, there, there was some dating going on in the midst of this eventually. When we finally broke up my sophomore year of college, I almost walked away from the faith. I wasn't sure if my conversion was related to her or if it was truly from the Lord. And so I had a weekend where my dad, my stepdad, uh, and my uncle were like, they were ready for me to give up the faith. I was seeing now what Christianity was costing me. And, um, but that weekend, I didn't walk away from the Lord. And I have been, by God's grace, walking with him ever since. You all should have received a copy of this book, Character Matters, that Aaron wrote last year or came out last year. So this book is basically, in a nutshell, about <clears throat> being a healthy leader. So a healthy church being based off of healthy leaders. Can you have a healthy church without a healthy Pastor or pastors, elders? Um, uh, the most important thing is that the word is being preached. And so I want to lean into to Paul and Philippians, who says, you know, so long as the gospel is preached, that's what's most important, paraphrase. And um, so I don't know how often that happens, that an unhealthy leader is preaching, uh, like a truly unhealthy leader is preaching the true gospel. But... I know it's happened. It happens a fair bit, and I think a lot of good can be done. So I think, I think ungodly men can cling to godly theology that the Lord uses to bring good to the church, but I think I call it somewhere in the book a ticking time bomb. So I, I, I just want to say it's, the word is more important than the pastor, and nothing I, I intended to write in that book was to communicate otherwise. So um, <clears throat> a lot of times we hear about very uh, public examples of pastors or other ministry leaders who have fallen away from the faith or have shipwrecked their lives through their own sin. How do you process that? And you know, how much should we learn? How much should we, how much we be willing to learn from people who eventually um, ruin their ministries and show that they were not healthy on the inside? Well, part of the interesting, what's interesting to me is that the older I've gotten, the more I've seen people who dotted their theological I's and crossed their theological T's where I do have fallen out of the ministry. 
if we were to go back in time 20 years ago, younger Aaron would have thought that type of failure is really what Arminians do. Their theology is bad, and so therefore, that's going to play itself out. And then, you know, you begin to look up, actually, that's not true at all. There's lots of people with really great theology who stumble and fall. So therefore, now when I see it, I've got a couple of things going on. One, I've got my own flesh, which is like reading the evangelical version of, um, oh, what's the tabloid magazine? The, the Inquirer? Did the Inquirer? Um, you know, it's like Inquirer stories about, you know, celebrity pastors that fall. That's not godly. But I think I process it by recognizing sort of there before the grace of God go I. Like, I understand how they got here. And then, like, I don't want to, like, like, the last thing you want to do is promote your own book. But, like, you, I just want to get online and say, would you please, like, read Galatians 5, read my book. I mean, this is, this is close to all of us. Somebody gave me a question, and I can't find it. So if it looks like I'm digging around for something, I'll keep looking. But uh, one of the questions that someone asked, <clears throat> you think about you know, personal health, but also um, so spiritual health, but then also physical health. So the question was basically how important is it partially? What does it look like for a pastor to take good care of his body with regard to sleep, with regard to exercise and eating, and especially after eating a great, healthy meal downstairs? How, how important is it to take care of our bodies? I think it's, I mean, I, I've, I've, I've not given it a ton of thought. I mean, I've read Spiritual Depression by Martin Lloyd-Jones. I know that we are, you know, we're, we're, we're physical uh, beings. And so we need to be good stewards of what God's given us. He's given us a body. Let's take care of it. Um, and self-control is a piece of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. So we should exercise self-control with regard to what we eat and how we use our body, and I think I don't have anything else to add. Okay. I think it was Nathan. Do you you mind asking your question publicly? Because I can't find it. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Okay. That's fine. I apologize. It's probably in my notes somewhere. I'll find it when I stand up. But... Um, all right, so a little bit more uh, from your experience. You've been a part of three church revitalization projects. Mm-hmm. So Capitol Hill, Third Avenue, Avenue, and now Mount Vernon. So if you take the aggregate of those three situations and try and kind of, I don't know, compile two or three of the best lessons that you could give us from those situations, what would those be? Well, I don't uh... Let me just start by saying I have the privilege of having been mentored by Mark Dever when Capitol Hill Baptist Church was very small. And um, I just consider my, I, I just consider that just the grace of God. I mean, right now there are just people all around the world who want to just sit at his feet and learn from him. Uh, I just landed in D.C. and I got to just, uh, I got to watch his life. I got to watch, watch his doctrine. And, um, and I, when I left Capitol Hill in 2000, I, I, I left firmly convinced that God uses his word to build his church. I, it's almost, I don't want to say mystical, but I, I felt it in my bones that I didn't need to be Mark Dever to see a healthy church. And, and it, that's a little bit maybe interesting because he's so gifted, you know, but sitting under him, and, and I was telling someone this weekend, at times being bored in his sermons. I mean, he, was, he was not interested in entertaining me. He's a very entertaining man. But, he, but there was something compelling about that model of ministry. So I went into Louisville, Kentucky, convinced God's word builds his church. And the reason why I pause is, so as years have gone by, and I've talked to people who have not been quite, you know, maybe not studied uh, in that environment, or maybe are, are new to Nine Marks, they really want to talk about the, the necessary leadership gifts you need. Like, they'll say, okay, I know that God uses his word to build the church, but, you know, 
And I, I, I just, I really do have in my theological mind a period after God uses his word to build his church. Certainly we need to be able to teach and we could spend the rest of the day, like what exactly is that? How do you know if a man has that? But if there's a congregation who's, who's, who's saying this brother is, is able to teach and he's going to teach the word of God and be faithful to it, good things are going to happen. So that is the lesson from my time in D.C., my time in Louisville, Kentucky, and, and now my time in Atlanta, Georgia. I mean, I have seen God use his word to build his church. None of them are mega, and none of them are megachurches, not even the one in D.C. You would say, well, it would be a megachurch if you went to do services, but that's another story. Good. <clears throat> I'll go ahead and open it up to questions to, from you guys. So if you have a question, you can just stand up, maybe say your name for everyone to kind of get to know each other a little bit better, and then I'll repeat the question if I remember. Hey, Brandon? Brandon or Brandon? Brandon. I think it's. I think it's. It's yes. And sorry. So the question, just to summarize, and maybe I'll summarize it badly. Sorry, Brandon. But the intersection between theology and politics, something along those lines. And I go ahead. Uh, I do think that within evangelicalism, broadly understood, there's a lot of diversity. I mean, take the convention that I'm a part of, the Southern Baptist Convention or the Great Commission Baptist. The Baptist faith and message is is not an extraordinarily unifying document theologically. Um, and so there's going to be a broad spectrum of different approaches methodologically, ecclesiologically, and soteriologically. And as a result, under that umbrella, you're going to see a lot of... Um, a lot of churches that, for example, are going to align themselves more with a political party and they are going to be thinking in terms of America as a city on a hill and that they're going to be more influenced by some of the uh, dispensationalism of the 20th century. So that's an example of, of landing in different theological places because of a lack of theological unity. It's not really what I was talking about because that's kind of always been there. What I'm talking about is, uh, is, is solidly reformed brothers and sisters who line up on ecclesiology, soteriology, um, and yet when it comes to uh, how do I relate to my governor, how do I relate to the CDC, which are vastly different questions, um, they're, they're landing in, in incredibly different, in practically speaking, incredibly different places. The, 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 that doesn't mean there needs to be disunity in the body over these issues, but at the same time, your church is either going to disobey the governor or not disobey the governor. Kind of like you're either going to baptize babies or not baptize babies. 
And it doesn't seem to be, theology doesn't seem to be leading us to the same place with regard to when to practice civil disobedience. Um, so that, that's how I would answer the question. Right, someone else? Sure, let me go to Don and then we'll go to Will. Okay, so the role of counseling for pastors, the role of pastors in counseling, the role of counseling in the church. I think the counseling should take place within the context of the local church. That's number one. I think that outsourcing should not be one's first, uh, one's first uh, goal or one's first recourse. Uh, God has gifted his church with what the church needs in order to provide for the needs of the members. So I start there. Number two, uh, uh, according to Ephesians 4, I believe that the pastors and the teachers are to equip the saints to basically do the work of the ministry. And I do think that includes uh, biblical counseling, Uh, that kind of disciple making, uh, even even in the hard cases. So I think a pastor's fundamental duty, as he's Acts 6 devoted to prayer and the ministry of the word, is ministering the word in such a way that the members of his church, the members of his church, are able to, competent, competent to counsel, all right? Um, number, number three, uh, a pastor is almost by definition an example uh, and that's a lot of what you know. My book is about, like, almost by definition, what does it mean to lead? You 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 exemplify the fruit of the spirit. If 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 Christians are to evangelize and disciple, and an extension of discipling, I would have biblical counseling. Then he's got to make time to do it, and uh, and that means that pastoral ministry is going to be hard. So. I'm not, I don't want to present exactly how I do ministry necessarily as a model for somebody else. But for me, I am, I'm working Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. And those three days are basically devoted to people, meetings, staff meetings, people, discipling, uh, and, and counseling. Thursday and Friday is devoted to preaching. Saturday, uh, is devoted to my family, with with few exceptions. It's devoted to my family, and then Sunday is the Lord's Day, and it's me as a Christian serving my church. So I don't want to get an argument. Is it a work day? Not a work day. All I know is it's the market day of the soul. So it won't be unusual for me to have a biblical counseling meeting on Sunday afternoon. Having said that, it doesn't take long before my finitude crops up, and I, I simply can't. I, I can't do it all. So I try to strike that. I, I try to model what it looks like to be a Christian, and that includes counseling, but I simply cannot meet every member's spiritual need. And so I've got to be working to raise up people. Now, if you guys want to come to Atlanta and start something like you're doing, I think, I think that'd be great. 
And I will add that, that our church does lean into other congregations that have, for various reasons, chosen to devote more resources to biblical counseling. And so I'm thankful for a network of churches. So I know there are members of my church, uh, it's the Lord's Church, but members of Mount Vernon, who you know knock on the door at Faith Community up in Woodstock, and they'll meet some of their trained members who are doing biblical counseling, and I thank God for that. Okay, Will? Oh, oh, absolutely. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So the question is basically how... No, you'll answer. <laughs> uh, the question is how did the Lord reveal to you that you lack gentleness and how did you go about Have growing? you ever lacked gentleness? Yes. You seem very gentle. Thank you. Um, is, it, is it a show? Uh, you could ask my wife that. I don't... I'm asking you. Think, I don't think it's a show. Not to say that I'm always gentle, but just that... I'm a little more laid back and more willing to let other people talk than, you know, get into controversy with people and things like that. So it's, I wouldn't say it's, you know, an area that I've arrived in, but it's not, of the fruit of the Spirit, it's not the one that I would initially attack yeah. as an opportunity to grow. Okay, yeah. So. Um, you, on the other hand. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny because, uh, I mean, everybody's different, so you bring up gentleness. I think the what's instructive is how, how often we compare ourselves to other men. I think that's instructive. So if there are men in your life, you're kind of like, I look at Eric, he just seems naturally kinder than I am, you know? And I'm tempted to want to be like Eric. I just want to be a little kinder, a little gentler, right? I want to be like Eric. And I think that's good, and I think that's how life works, we, we use other people as standards. Well, for me, I worked on Capitol Hill in D.C. I lived in a city which is sort of not known for money, but known for power, where people sort of got ahead by wielding their words. And I think when I was in D.C., and, and some of that, you, know, you see that, the, the church is made of the people in the world, right? I mean, we're not monks. And uh, I think I left D.C., feeling like one of the gentler guys kind of in the room. And then, like, fast forward, you know, 15 years, and uh, I've got a young man who we're about ready to call to be an elder, and on his, like, little evaluation form, he says, I'm not sure, Aaron, that I can serve with you as an elder because you're often, like, harsh and intimidating. And I thought, I'm intimidating. I'll show you intimidating. Like, that's what I'm thinking. And that's when it sort of dawned on me. It dawned on me that at that moment, I realized there was another guy on our staff who um, just had a hard time, like, you know, maybe asking me questions. And I just, I totally didn't see it. So if you will, the genesis of, like, my little meditational book was, like, how could I be so good theologically how could I have been so well discipled and yet not realize something as obvious as this? And I just thought, well, that's happened to me. Certainly there's other people out there who maybe aren't doing the hard work of asking themselves, where am I falling short? Now, we're all falling short, but if you're in ministry, where you're falling short could have an unusually, unusually large negative effect in your congregation. So harshness was where I started, you know, and it probably was the sin that was, was, it was, I know it was revealed to me, it probably was my biggest struggle, and it's still a struggle, you know, even though I wrote the book, it's still a struggle. My wife's not here, but you could ask her. 
That's good. Okay, another question. Uh, Clayton. Okay, so you have a, say, a lay elder who's struggled with particular sins in the past and now wonders whether he's qualified for ministry but is being approached about being an elder. How do you address that? Well, I think we've all, like, leaned into the Andy Nacelli conscience book, right? I mean, I don't know, all of us, but a lot of us have read the book on conscience. And, uh, you know, if there's a man whose conscience is, you know, really challenging him, uh, I'm going to be slow. I'm going to be slow to try and get him to believe, no, you should not let that past sin bother you. You've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. You're a new creature in Christ. Uh, Because I want him to want to be an elder. Because what I do know is that Paul says it is a noble calling, right? Um, You should, you know, you should desire to be an elder. Um, So that's sort of where I begin. And and having done that, then I I would then want to know how is your doctrine of sanctification? You know, are there some are there some deficiencies in how you're understanding forgiveness? And then that's a pastoral, that's a pastoral theological discipleship project. Um, and it could be that his inability or unwillingness to embrace the forgiveness and restoration that he finds in Christ might be evidence that he's really not well-suited to be an elder. Or it could be that he's not above reproach, and then I would just have to know so much more. The pastor or, or lay elder as well, so staff pastor or lay elder, staff elder, lay elder, I'm trying to use the same terms here, who is struggling with pornography right now, how would you approach that situation? Boy, if, if, if he is struggling, and actually there's a Nine Marks article on this topic, which I asked the question, what do you do if a deacon is struggling with pornography, if an elder is struggling with pornography, or a senior pastor is struggling with pornography? And I really think it's important to ask those questions like now, like, like, like before, I know you're talking about someone who's in it, but I think that one of the stumbling blocks in our churches is men don't know what's going to happen if they confess. I say men because I'm looking at a room of men. I see some women here. Pornography is a problem for women. But my fear is that because a man has no idea what would happen if he confessed, he's not going to confess. And so how do we create a culture where men are willing to confess because, and assuming this is the culture, because they know confessing doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to be stripped of all leadership responsibilities. Now, maybe different churches are going to have different lines on how, not that you can tolerate any pornography, but if a man says, you know what, last night I watched a rated R movie, and I didn't turn it off, is he then, does he need to step down from the elder body? I think those are questions, those types of questions are questions that elder bodies need to have. You know, and so at least you can figure out where are you as a church, not to ask the question how much pornography is okay. No pornography is okay. But recognizing men stumble, when do you think a man who has stumbled needs to step out of ministry, either for a season or permanently? So if I know of, a, of an elder who is struggling with pornography, I'm immediately going to want to affirm him bringing it up. Say, like, yes, praise God, right at the, off the bat, that is the difference between life and death. If you had gone on just keeping the secret, that is so dangerous for your own soul. I want you to forget about eldering right now, forget about everything, and just praise God that this is now in the light. And now I want to explore, can you talk to me about how long you've been struggling can you talk to me about what kind of struggle it is without getting drawn into it? So I don't want every detail, 
but I want to know something about longevity. I want to know something about intensity. I want to know something about, you know, the, uh, yeah, just the, the, uh, the, the intensity of it. And from there, I'm going to want to bring others in. If he's an elder, I'm going to want to bring in an elder chair. Now, depending, if, if I find it is low duration and low intensity, I might just say, praise God, it's in the light. Let's get accountability. How are we? If I'm thinking, wow, this is longer than I thought, or this is of an intensity that concerns me, let's bring in an elder chair or another elder, and let's, let's craft a plan. And that plan may be uh, um, uh, a sort of a form of church discipline whereby he actually steps down from the elder body for a season, uh, or it may be he does some more intense biblical counseling for a season, uh, or it may be that you know he go he he actually needs to needs to resign completely from the elder body, uh, and I couldn't begin to say which which uh, channel he's going to going to traverse, but it's such an important question, and it's so helpful to know in advance what would you do if you found out. Well, let me just ask a couple similar questions, and if you guys have questions again, we'll come back to those, but. Similar situation, or, you know, like basically what would you say to the pastor who? So there's kind of short answers if you'd like. To the pastor who's watching his children walk away from the faith or at least walk through a significant period of doubt about Lord and salvation, how you'd kind of shepherd a pastor through that kind of a trial. But this is like, you're wanting like lightning round? Sure. Ish. Uh-huh. Um, make sure that you know, ask the question, is there anything in my parenting that would indicate that I've not been managing my household well? And if the answer is no, I think I, I think, and others think I'm doing everything I can do, uh, entrust the Lord, entrust the child to the Lord, and recognize God is sovereign. And if for whatever reason the behavior is so egregious, the child's behavior is so egregious that he is, at, in fact, could not be defined as faithful and recognize that that, that that's disqualifying, and, and you may need to do something else with your life. But you're just giving me very little time, so I'm just going to stop there. <laughs> okay, thank you. That could freak uh, some people out, but let's keep going. I understand. So how about uh, someone who's ready to quit his church or the ministry altogether for any number of reasons? How, you know, let's assume there's somebody like that right here. What would you say to him? Well, I mean, maybe that's just really great. I mean, praise God for this sort of renaissance of, of plur- plural elder leadership. And I think there are a lot of brothers who would like be so happy to work at Costco. I mean, I think I could be happy working at Costco. Have you been to Costco? <laughs> I mean, it's just a really well-run organization. And um, there's lots of people to talk to. So it's like, it's not the worst thing in the world. Like leaving paid pastoral ministry is not leaving pastoral ministry. So, but I'm answering short. There's more I want to say. <laughs> on that one. Because you know, maybe somebody, maybe what somebody needs to hear is your patience chapter. <laughs> and actually stick it out. Don't just throw the towel in. Maybe somebody needs to hear that. Like, just go get a job at Costco for the sake of your family or something. But You know, I do, I, I'm, some of you are my age, maybe a little bit older. Um, we did come of age in, a, in an evangelical world where if your church wasn't growing fast, something was wrong. That was just sort of the air. No one said it, but it just sort of like we're all on track to trying to build a megachurch. And then, you know, you fast forward about 10, 15 years in my lifetime, we're all on track to build kind of a multi-site megachurch. And um, I'm really excited about a generation that recognizes, man, the Lord is sovereign over how many people come. And so I just want to be faithful with who I have. I love that. I think it's a John Brown quote that my former pastor always gives, you know, about an older pastor speaking to a younger pastor. He says something like, I know your heart. I know your desire for bigger church. But like when you stand at the gates of heaven, you'll be thankful that you just had who you had. And, uh, that's a sweet quote and a sweet reminder. So I'd hate for someone to quit ministry simply because the church wasn't growing the way 
He wanted it to grow. At the same time, you know, pastors certainly need to feed their families, and there could be like a lack of growth might mean I can't support myself. There's no shame in that, in saying I need to go find something else. But yes, be patient. Any other questions? Yeah, Eric. What's your name again? Eric, I think that's a very perceptive and interesting question. Questions, what is the fruit of the spirit of goodness? Because it's the one I struggled with the most when I actually started trying to look into, okay, what's exactly going on here? And interestingly, um, uh, Jerry Bridges wrote a book on the fruit of the spirit for a popular audience. And mine is written really for pastors and church leaders. He wrote it for a popular audience. And if I understood that chapter well... He took the the fruit of the spirit of goodness basically the way I take kindness, like like doing good. The fruit of goodness is like you're someone who does good. And I didn't take it that way at all, although I think it's they're all together and combined. I took goodness to be sort of basically, basically your justification, like the righteousness of Christ has been imputed to you now that you're a Christian. And and now, so where does justification, I don't want to say bleed over into sanctification. That's probably not helpful. But where does it produce sanctification? Well, the, 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 the fruit of the spirit of goodness is like your internal soul. It's your communion with the Lord. That's That's the goodness that we want. And then I think, in one sense, goodness, it's a lot. Everything kind of flows from that. That's more than I want to say because it starts with love. But goodness, is, goodness and love are like the two most internal. Actually, goodness might even be more internal because I, I know how to show acts of loving my wife. But the moment I show my goodness, I think I'm, I'm bleeding over into kindness. So that's where I landed on goodness. So... You know, Jesus says, no one is good but God the Father. What is it? No one is holy but God the Father. No one is really righteous but God the Father. So as a Christian, I want to pursue that kind of righteousness. I want to pursue that kind of holiness. But I don't pursue it by preaching good sermons. I pursue it by getting on my knees and, and, and really praying that I would be half the man I'm preaching. And no one will ever see that. So it's almost like, like goodness is the fruit that nobody sees. But I don't think Jerry Bridges agrees, and I really respect him. Someone else? I'm sorry, I actually, can you repeat the question? I, I'm how, sorry, how, do you, how do you encourage evangelism and not just encourage um, sanctification? That's good. Uh, that's a great question. And uh, I'm going to give a slightly pragmatic answer, okay? Because it's so very important. That I don't know why that, the importance of the question means you should get a pragmatic answer. I guess what I'm just saying is that we all want that. Like, we don't just want a church filled with godly people. We know that godly people are going to evangelize. Like, we know that intellectually. Like, godly people are going to share their faith. But it seems like we've met godly people who don't share their faith. So they certainly they're not as godly as they need to be. So we've got a sanctification problem. Okay, now I'm getting a headache. So for me, here's what I do as a pastor, just brass tacks. Here's what I do. I practically never stop talking about evangelism. There are a few things in my ministry that I practically never stop talking about. One of them is evangelism. 
the other is disciple-making, the other is family ministry, the other is generosity, and the other is serving other churches. I practically never stop talking about those things. Now, in a few years, maybe there's some other things that are going to crop up, but for where Mount Vernon is and for where I saw my local church, those were areas that I thought, I just need to keep talking about that. I need to talk about that. And also, because our churches are constantly changing, you think you nailed it because you did a topical sermon series on evangelism. But at the end of the day, the person who really needed needed to hear that was at the beach. Three people have joined the church since you gave that message, and 90% of the people forgot what you said. I mean, that is just life. It's called the noetic effects of the fall. The fall affected how we think. My memory is awful because of sin. I think in heaven, I know in heaven, my memory is going to be great, okay? So when it comes to evangelism, uh, I want, I desire every member of Mount Vernon to be sharing the gospel naturally with the people around him or her uh, regularly. And by that, I'm shooting for every week and with a sense of urgency. And what I just said to you right there, naturally, regularly with a sense of urgency, it's like I talk about that all the time. And all the time, I'm looking for opportunities to, to, to bring it up, to celebrate it, to encourage it, uh, giving out books like I mentioned on Sunday morning, uh, The Simplest Way to Change the World. Uh, great book. It's like if you read Rosaria Butterfield's The Gospel Comes with the House Key, I mean, that's a better book, but it can just make you feel bad about yourself. And, and the, and, um, but it's wonderful. I mean, I, it's wonderful... I read it, encouraged people to read it. But The Simplest Way to Change the World, a book on hospitality, just anything I can do to get members of Mount Vernon thinking about it. I just, I don't think I'm a great evangelist, but modeling it myself. But you just, you, you never stop doing it. You never arrive. The moment you think you've arrived, you've completely mistook what pastoral ministry is. Because a lot of pastoral ministry is, it's expositional preaching, and then it's saying that making the same application points every day until you die. And one of those application points is we need to be a people with a heart for the nations and our neighborhood. So I could say a lot more, but that would be like, a, that again, that's a question that would take hours to unpack. Good. All right. Anything else? What are some lessons you can't learn in seminary? How'd you learn them? Uh, no, it's a great it's a great question. I just don't know that I have a great answer for that. I mean, there are things that I learned in seminary that, again that I forgot. Like uh, uh, Steve Wellen taught me about uh, uh, passive and active obedience of Christ. I had someone come and talk to me about that. I didn't remember anything from seminary about that. And then I go look at my notes; they were there. So there's, seminary teaches you a lot of good things, and you just forget them. Uh, that's probably not the heart of what, of what you're asking. I don't know how to answer it well, only because, you know, as I say in my book, you can't microwave wisdom. And so it's not the seminary's fault. It's just sometimes you just need to, um, I don't want to say you just need to experience things. That sounds too experiential. But it, it takes time. To grow. Sanctification is a process. So it's not like there's something seminary didn't teach you. It's like everything seminary taught you, you're not going to be able to you're not going to be able to apply as well your first year of ministry as you are your 50th year of ministry. If God gives you 50 years. Because if you've got the Holy Spirit, you're constantly growing. Now the real question that I have for God and I, I want to say this with great humility, is, is God, why are we so often in situations where we perceive ourselves to need the most wisdom when we have the least? In other words, 
all of us, many of us choose a wife when we're very young, right? God didn't fall asleep at the wheel when he set it up that way. You know, that's just big decisions you make when you've got the least amount of wisdom. And maybe he does it so that we recognize from day one we need to, we need to rely on godly counsel and we, we need to rely on the word and the word is sufficient. You don't need 50 years of experience to be a godly pastor. So from day one out of seminary, even though you don't know everything and even though there's, even though there's some holes in your knowledge, you've got enough with the word of God to go in and be a faithful shepherd of the church. Now I'm not even answering your question, but that's where my mind went. So we saw some of the fruit of your PhD in church history at 9.15 or whatever time that was. What do you say are the best reasons to study church history and the best resources for a pastor to study church history? Well, I originally studied church history for two reasons. One, I had seen the fruit of it in Mark Dever's ministry. Like, wow, that was really helpful seeing how he engaged. And so that was a good model for me, just seeing being pastored by a church historian. But this, the, the reason why I studied American church history is because I had every expectation that I was going to be in Oregon. And Oregon, you know, is basically a, a post-Christian culture in America. And I just thought it'd be really great when I'm evangelizing in Oregon to be able, with greater uh, facility, explain to people how we got here. And I thought knowing American church history would be a, a, a boon evangelism in my home state. Um, Having gotten that degree in church history and doing it in Atlanta, Georgia, where people aren't struggling with the same questions, I simply would say that it's been certainly edifying for me to be forced to read and study in areas that I might not naturally read and study. It's given me a helpful lay of the land because much like we're all theologians, in one sense we're all historians, we're all keeping track of what's going on around us, and it's unusually helpful to know Ecclesiastes. There's nothing new under the sun. Um, three, it is uh, any, any academic study is a study in self-control and self-discipline, and that's actually going to help you because what are pastors? They're teachers. So I, don't, I certainly don't think every man should get a PhD, but one of the, one of the benefits of it is it just builds that core strength for a life of studying and a life of teaching. And some men don't need that. They have that core strength already. Some men are helped by going to the gym and having someone. And, and, and a, a PhD can be a little bit like going to the gym. Uh, but there's a lot more to be said about a PhD because really a PhD is designed for you to become a teacher. It's not fundamentally, it's not a vocational degree not a degree you get to pastor. So, but I'm certainly thankful that I got it and blessed by it. I don't know. I'm sure it did help me with the George Lyle thing, but I don't think you need a PhD in church history to do what I did. You just, you know, need to spend a little time reading. And we're going to have to end up. Mm-hmm. Kind of the connection between revival and good theology. Well, I mean, if you've all read, or if you if, if you should read Ian Murray's book, Revival and Revivalism, and so revivalism is a man-made phenomenon that we're seeing today, whereby uh, pastors uh, manipulate congregants by creating an atmosphere which leads people to join a movement that is exciting but doctrinally aberrant. I mean, it's not, it, not, it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the true gospel. It's all about being part of a movement. Uh, and that's what Charles Finney did. And, uh, and that's, you know, that's not of the Lord. You know, now the businessmen's 
prayer meeting of 1859 in New York City is when led by um, a Presbyterian pastor, but it wasn't only Presbyterian ministers, but the members of these solid churches in New York City got together and they prayed for revival. And you can go read some of the sermons that happened in 1859, and they were sound orthodox messages about the wrath of God, and God used that to bring a degree of revival to New York. And in all honesty, when I look around a little bit at at what's going on in Chicago, and I see churches like yours, uh, and like there's more than one, they're like, they're dotting the city. They're kind of everywhere. Like I'm in Southwest Chicago. I'm in Northwest Chicago. I don't know like how many converts you're seeing, but what I do know is that there are light posts going up, lighthouses going up, where the gospel is being faithfully preached. And I think the groundwork is being laid for revival at the local level. Doctrinally solid, prayerful, and like, you know, we know that God has his people in the city, right? We know that to be true. So I think we lay the groundwork for revival and we pray for it. But that has nothing to do with like this silly, spontaneous baptism stuff that we're seeing in some parts of the country. I mean, that's revivalism. And I don't think it's of the Lord. So much. We're going to begin at 2.15 for our final session. Nathan, you want to ask your question? You said it's not super spiritual, so it's kind of up to you. But (laughs) Okay. You can catch Aaron after after the break or during the break. Thank you so much for your time, Aaron. And um, So we'll begin at 2.15 with our final session. We get started once again here. A couple kind of housekeeping items to take care of. Uh, First of all, Aaron, I need you to help um, give away this Bible here on behalf of Cross Care Counseling. So if you can grab a name out of this hat, so to speak, so we know 